Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Mark Santum. As you can imagine, uh, as you can plainly see from the intro and from the bulletin, we are continuing our one-word series this summer, and the word that we are uh, exploring today is the biblical word, the biblical concept of neighbor. Um, like the Santums, probably many of you have had very interesting neighbor stories, stories that are just beautifully wonderful, stories that are just weird, and stories that are just tough and difficult, right? How many of you, if we had, if we sat here and had neighbor stories over the years, how many of you could just talk for a long time, right? Oh, we would be entertained. Um, and when I, and you know, like if you talk to my wife and my children, we can share all kind of those stories. Um, the house we lived in, before the house we live in now, we lived in an interesting neighborhood. We made some very good friends there, but uh, we did have some neighbors that were very, very challenging. Um, so you can imagine having a neighbor that would do many things uh, to you. Um, here's a small list, a small sampling. If you have a neighbor, imagine that perpetually burns trash fires in front of your house, throws garbage and food into your yard when you're not looking, yells and curses at your kids, accuses your kids and your family of wrongdoing falsely, and shoots the back of your Honda Element out with a 22, which the neighbor claimed that he did not do, but I have that video surveillance tape still here on my phone, so which we chose not to use against him. So when you have a neighbor like that, you ask yourself, Jesus, I know what you want out of a, a good neighbor. I know how you want to treat a neighbor. I know everyone is my neighbor, but does this guy, is this guy really my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Please tell me that he does not have to be for much longer. So that same question, who is my neighbor, it was asked by uh, a, a, a lawyer, a teacher of the law to Jesus, as we see here in Luke 10. And so this morning, we're going to explore Jesus' answer to that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you uh, for your graciousness. We thank you for your love, the love that you have given this, your church, for everyone. Lord, as we explore this concept of neighbor, uh, it, it's a very concept that, that brings such warm memories to us, but also... Uh, great pain and difficulty as well. So we pray that you would just meet us here in the truth of your holy word and by the revelation of your Holy Spirit. Be with us today that we would be doers of your word and not merely hearers of them. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, many of you are familiar with that. So uh, we're just going to take the first few moments of the sermon today to re-explore that once again. So here's uh, the lawyer asking Jesus, and this is in Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to Jesus to test him and said, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Okay, so let's hit the pause button there real quickly. Um, just to get some context here, Jesus just sent out the 72, all right, to, uh, to begin to share the gospel. And so 
in, in light of that, an expert in the religious law approaches Jesus to ask him how to inherit eternal life. So already you have, you have a lawyer that's talking about inheritance, right? So um, this guy might be doubling as an estate lawyer. I don't know. But uh, for sure, he was an expert in the Jewish Mosaic rabbinical law. And he was testing Jesus. Now, let me just say that that Greek word for testing does not automatically imply that he was being mean or vindictive or trying to trap him like a lot of the Pharisees were. It can mean an honest, indicate an honest, um, heartfelt search. Uh, in this case, I believe that that's what it was. Uh, I believe that uh, this lawyer was similar to Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night really wanting to know the truth. So he asked him, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Now let me just say this, uh, American evangelicals often talk, of, when you think of eternal life, we automatically go right from death to heaven and how long we'll live. He's not interested here, the, the Jewish thought was not interested in the length or the quantity of life, but the quality of life. Like what is this kingdom of God that you are describing? It's very different than the, than, than the life that I am living, the, the, the life that I am experiencing under the law. And so, knowing the, knowing the law handily, the lawyer quotes back to Jesus, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one, which is the Shema, uh, a prayer um, often prayed by the Jews. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, uh, mind, and with all of your strength. Now, notice, that's what it says in Deuteronomy. The lawyer added, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that part is not in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So this, this lawyer here, he decides to add, love your neighbor as yourself. So how did he know to do that? Why would he do that? Well, I believe that it is very possible that this lawyer had been following Jesus around, listening to him for quite some time. And is it possible that, for instance, when um, in Mark 12, Jesus was getting ganged up on by all kind of Pharisees and teachers. And that's when Jesus in Mark 12, 30, when one of the Pharisees says, Jesus, out of all the 600 and some laws that are out there, there's a lot of them. We're kind of drowning them. Which one is most important? And that's when Jesus gives the, the, the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So you understand why this, this teaching is so pivotal because uh, in, under the law, you were able to separate a lot of things. You had a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? You were able to do this. That's why you were able to, uh, the Pharisees were able to give one-tenth of all of their spices and things, and they can go out and treat a brother, you know, horribly, because you could do that. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Jesus, remember, Jesus is not here to abolish the law. He's here to fulfill it in all of its fulfillment and, and give a, a broader explanation of it. So he says, hey, you love Jesus with all you want. It starts here, this vertical relationship. God starts because we love because God, what? First loved us. So God loves us. We love him back. This is the vertical part, right? And Jesus says, in order to complete this commandment, there's a horizontal part. You have to love your brothers and sisters as you love yourself. And it's a cool metaphor for us because what, what shape does this make, right? A cross. And so what Jesus uh, is saying here is that relationships, human relationships, they are just as an important way to express the love of God as what you do between you and Jesus, right? And so um, 
the lawyer's trying to wrap his mind around this, but this, gets, this, this bears out in many places in Scripture. The Apostle John in 1 John 4.20 says this, if someone says, well, I love God, right, but he hates his brother, he is a liar. For who, uh, he does not, who, for who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hasn't seen? And so we get this full expression of the love of God. It's to love God and to love your neighbor. And they are linked. They are not separate. They are one commandment that are intricately tied one to another. So being a good lawyer that he was, he wants clarification in this Torah addendum about loving your neighbor. You know, maybe he thinks he's already nailed this part. Because let's be honest, to say you love God, there's almost, probably almost all Americans say, yeah, I love God. It can be very ambiguous, right? You can, it's nebulous, like, oh, how do you love God? But to say you love number, uh, to, to say, you know, whether you love your neighbor or not, that is very visible to everybody because we all see how we treat people. So that's when he says, okay, Jesus, who, before I commit to this whole thing here, who exactly is my neighbor? And being the good teacher that Jesus was, he responds to him in a story, in a parable. We pick up in verse 30. Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he too passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So most of us know why this parable is striking the lawyer. The one thing that was not surprising was the fact that Jesus mentioned that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was infamous for crimes and muggings. Everybody knew that. That was like the danger zone. So that part wasn't a surprise. But... The fact that both a priest and a Levite, both who are religious officials, the fact that two Jewish religious officials saw this man in need and they kept walking, you know what? Um, you know, that's, that's the first twist right there. So um, here's a little personal aside or a little application for us before we get too judgmental on these religious officials. Um, we could have guessed perhaps surmise some of the excuses that was going on in their minds, right? And these might be the very similar excuses that we use when we see someone in need. They might have thought, well, this road is way too dangerous for me to stop and help this man. I mean, I'm putting my own life at risk. Perhaps this guy is just a decoy. Maybe, maybe there's a bunch of guys more bigger than him and angry at him. Maybe they're going to ambush me. So I better keep walking. They might have thought, well, if I'm going to serve at the table, well, you know, Lord knows I can't get my clothes bloody. You know, that's, that's not kosher. I don't even know first aid. Like, how, how could I even help him? You know, I can't remember how to do CPR. Can't remember that course. They might have thought, well, he's not asking for help, you know, probably because he's half dead. Um, or here's a good one. Or I shall pray for him as I go along the road. Now, a lot of us, when we see uh, a homeless man or a woman a or a family asking for money, now, I granted, this is not the same urgency as this man. I get that. 
So, but there's a lot of those excuses a lot of us come up, if you're going to be honest, right? We'd, like to, we'd rather just kind of, mm-hmm, I don't see anything, and go along our merry way. At this point in the story with the lawyer, getting back to them, the lawyer is probably expecting Jesus' surprise twist to say that maybe a common non-religious Jew comes to the rescue. But Jesus jolts this lawyer by telling him that it was a Samaritan who came to the man's aid and saved the day. This is like, this is akin to like a, a Yankees fan helping a Red Sox fan, like a Ravens fan helping a Steelers fan. It'd be like um, Nancy Pelosi helping out Mike Pence, right? Like, what is happening here? Why are these enemies helping each other? In fact, the Jews despised the Samaritans so much, both racially and religiously. They despised them so much that some of the rabbis even forbade Jews helping a Samaritan woman that was giving birth, her life in in jeopardy. You You weren't even allowed to help her because you would be aiding and abetting the entrance of a new dirty Gentile into the world. That's how... That's how deep this hatred ran. Think of Jonah and how much he hated the Ninevites. This is the kind of hatred that we're talking. So after telling Jesus, uh, after Jesus tells this parable to the wide-eyed lawyer, he says in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus says, go and do likewise. You know, I think it's interesting that the, the uh, lawyer can't even bring, the, bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He's like, well, the, the, the dude that, you know, had mercy on him. But Jesus is simply saying this with a parable. Because remember, a good exegesis when you're reading the scriptures, um, it's just dangerous. It's not very good um, Bible study practice when you see a parable to think that it's an allegory and that every little thing means something. The basic general purpose of a parable is to, to give across one main point. That's it. So the one main point Jesus is saying, go and do likewise, love those around you, love them even if they are considered an enemy, regardless of their politics, their nationality, their skin color, their religion, or their lifestyle. They are your neighbor. If anyone has need, has need in your path, help him, help her as a way of demonstrating your love for God. That's very sobering, isn't it? So here's the deal. So Jesus, to the lawyer, he broadens his definition of what a neighbor is because the a lawyer and a lot of the Jews, this is their neighbor. This is their view of the neighbor, all right? The people that I know, the people that I trust, the people that are like me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is your neighbor, everybody that's in your purview. So um, that was a sobering thing there. So for our purposes this morning, I would certainly not try to narrow the meaning of neighbor again. Once Jesus said the neighbor is this, I would never say the neighbor is this. But today, what we're going to do for our purposes, I'm not going to, I don't want to narrow the meaning. I do, I do want to narrow the focus for what we talk about today, and this is, uh, I believe, the leading of the Spirit. I would like to focus the balance of our time on the people that live next to us, our legitimate geographical neighbors. Why? Because geography matters, where you are matters, and where you live matters. It does. Where God placed you right now, it matters. The sovereign God of the universe does not have you where you are now by accident. So there's an interesting study. It's a the theology of place, where you look through the scriptures and you see, basically, that, that, that God, um, he's got a very vested interest in geography and where people are. Basically, the theology of place is based on the fact that God, who lives outside of time and space, 
right? He created a world that does not. And we are his creation. We are bound to things like temporary bodies, laws of physics, time, and location. So in this earthly setting, God sends his eternal, omnipresent son to unleash and unveil the kingdom of God. See, God is the ultimate place maker. He's the one that creates places for us and times and seasons and these places, they shape our souls and they change the culture around us. You understand that? God puts people where they are for a reason. And if you notice that now, the people that live in certain parts of the world, different parts of the world are very different. The way, the way their worldview, the way they treat others, the way they see the world, it's because when uh, people get together, a lot of like-minded people, they kind of create a little world of their, of their own, right? So you have to think then of all the billions of people that have ever lived and all the ones that ever will, here we are, us, here we are in 2019 in Hampton Roads, whether you live in Portsmouth, Virginia Beach, Suffolk, you know, Norfolk, Chesapeake, here we are in this giant timeline. This is us in this time and place. And is that, is that accidental? I think not. What I love, uh, one, of the, one of the great places in Scripture that bears this out is uh, Paul um, kind of unintentionally ended up in Athens, right? But nothing is unintentional in God's economy. And so the, the Athenians, they know nothing of Jehovah. They know nothing of Jesus Christ. And so in his conversations with others, he decides, he says this in Acts 17, 26 through 27. He kind of gives them the real basics. He said, listen, from one man, he made all of the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out for them their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Basically, he, put, he said when they are and where they are. Why did God do this? I love verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Amen. For those of you that come Wednesday night to the Operation Worldview, where's my Operation Worldview folks, all right? So the stuff that we're learning there is so great that God sovereignly places people where he desires so he can reveal his glory to them. And once the glory is received, then God receives worship back from them. And so we are all involved in that process right now. And a lot of that entails where you are, where you live, the people that God puts in your path the people that God calls you to be a neighbor to. And I'll tell you what, where you live matters, even if you do not like where you currently live, even if you do not like the, the people that currently live around you. It doesn't matter. God said, God doesn't never, never anywhere in Scripture say, well, you got to like it before you can obey me, before I can use you, right? So oftentimes, whenever you feel that you're in the least desirable spot, that's usually you're in the precipice of something beautiful, wonderful. Even when the... Even when the Jews, during the exile, they, the Babylonians came in, you know, raised uh, Jerusalem to the ground. They got, they got carried off to Babylon. Even in Babylon, God gave them the command to occupy, to be faithful, to settle there, to continue to manifest his glory. They didn't say, well, you're in exile, so just live however you want until uh, you come back to Jerusalem. He didn't say that. Be faithful with wherever you are. And I'll tell you what, nobody, for as bad as the situation is now, nobody of you, none of us have, um, are facing Babylonian exile. So uh, you don't have that comparison. 
Consider some biblical examples of where place matters. I could run a list here for hours, but I just picked a few just to give you an example. Number one, Adam and Eve, they were not nomadic. God gave them a home in Eden from which to be fruitful and multiply. Abraham, God could have used the town of Ur where he is from, because no, this place isn't for, this place isn't gonna be um, a fountainhead for my glory. It's gonna be over here. Right? In the promised land, that's where it's going to happen. So in Canaan, so Canaan's land of promise, this land was so special, so strategic, that it was worth fighting for. There's um, a practice, as you see throughout Scripture, of, 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 of Jews building standing stones, these little monuments of stones, to commemorate a place because God met them there. Right? So... Um, there's all kinds of examples, but Jacob at Bethel, where God gave him that dream, he, he built a pile of standing stones so that place became special. Moses at the, at the base of Mount Sinai, standing stones, that place is special. The Jews, whenever God parted the Jordan River for them so they could cross over, standing stones. You see, um, so when people would come years from now, they could say, oh, what is this? Why is there this pile of stones here? They say, because this place matters, because God manifested his glory here. You see guys like um, Nehemiah and Ezra, they, they're, they're serving under foreign kings. Cyprus, the Persian king Artaxerxes. These pagan kings have no, they don't care about Jerusalem. But God cares about the place of Jerusalem. So he would come in, show them favor in the eyes of the king and sent them back. And, and with the king, the pagan king's resources went and rebuilt the wall and the temple because place matters. Jesus, you know, he wasn't born in a place where kings are known to be born. He was born in the humble town of Bethlehem, the same place where the humble shepherd David was anointed king. Bethlehem mattered. The coming of the Spirit. A lot of people, if a lot of us were there, we'd still be hanging out on the Mount of Olives where the last we saw Jesus. So like, oh, I'm waiting right here because that's where he left. I ain't going anywhere else. And Jesus said, no, 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 don't wait here. Wait in Jerusalem because that's where the Spirit will come. So, you know, he had to move places because God has different uh, strategic um, missions for different places. If you read the book of Revelation, this is the, one of the most beautiful concepts ever that this earth, which is fallen and corrupt by sin, it will, in the book of Revelation, we will um, receive the new heavens and the new earth, completely redeeming this fallen and cursed earth that we live on now. It matters. This, earth, this world matters, and Jesus is going to be completely redeeming with the new heavens and new earth right here on the soil that we are walking on today. Isn't that mind-blowing? Anyhow, I could go on and on, but I will stop there. Just to give you an idea, I, just wanted, I felt like I wanted to set the stage to, for us to realize that where, where you are, it matters. Places you have been matters. Places where God will take you to matters. And where you are now, I believe that the Spirit of God puts you where you are so you can interact with the neighbors around you so that they would perhaps seek him and reach out for Jesus, even though he's not far from all of them. Which means that we, as ambassadors of Christ, we better be excellent at being good neighbors. Amen. Do not, church, do not let State Farm be the benchmark, right? You know, like a good neighbor, the church should be there. All right, I'm done singing for the, for the entire day, I promise you. So here, so, let's, let's, so for, the, for the balance of our time here, let's get really practical. Can we do that? If we are going to be good, godly neighbors, godly neighbors, 
We at the first just know how to be good neighbors. There's a worldly standard for what is a good neighbor. And some of us don't even reach that. So I found online, did a little research on, it was a, it was a site, not Christian at all, just like on how to be a good neighbor. So here are 10 ways you can be a good neighbor. And you, you if, you're, if you're with your spouse, you guys can grade yourself, A, B, C, D, E, or F. And um, now I realize some of you live like in an apartment complex. You're living on top of each other. Some of you are in crowded neighborhoods. Some of you are in Chesapeake. Your closest neighbor is 16 miles away. So, you know, whatever context that is. Number one, do you keep up your curb appeal, right? Number two, do you share important information with your neighbors? Like if you see a rickety ice cream truck van driving around your neighborhood in January, you should probably tell your neighbors, especially if they have kids. Do you pick up your pet's poop? I am telling you this. If you let your dog poop in your neighbor's yard and then you try to share the gospel with them, good luck with that. I'm serious. I'm serious. I never thought I'd say poop in a sermon, but there you go. Checklist, bucket list right there. Number four, do you greet your neighbors when you see them? Like when you see them, do you pretend like they're not there or do you actually greet them? Do you turn your back on neighborhood gossip? When, the, you know, oh, some of you are neighbors, the, the gossip is just like juicy, uh, vile, toxic juice coming from like, ah, and you, t- you turn your back on that. Are you too noisy or intrusive of neighbors? Check on your music and, you know, are you, are you really, uh, you know, getting all up in their business? Do you know your neighbors' names? Do you know their names? It's a good question. It's easier to greet them, I'm telling you, uh, when you, when you um, know their names. Because you can only say, hey, bro, so many times. <laughs> do you offer to help them do anything? If you see them loading, you know, building something or struggling, did you ever just say, drop everything and help them? That makes a big difference. Do you handle conflict graciously? I know none of you ever have conflict with your neighbors, but when you do, how you deal with that is important. And the big focus for today is do you practice hospitality? Can we focus on that here? The, the practicing of hospitality. Here's a great quote, a uh, sobering quote by Alexander Strach, who's a Christian author. It's the next slide. He says this, an open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving sacrificial spirit. A lack of hospitality is often a sign of selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity. Say amen or oh me. So again, this, this isn't scripture, this is a guy's quote, but it, 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 should be, it should be a little bit biting for us. It really should be. The author of Hebrews says, show hospitalities to strangers. For by doing so, some, have, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Hebrews 13, 2. Remember the scriptures do not say, hey, you should, you should show hospitality because you might entertain an angel. It just says practice hospitality, period. Oh yeah, and by the way, some of them that have done that, angels they have entertained them so i in in modern day america i can think of no better place to meet a bunch of strangers than the ones that live right around you now some of you are much some of you are probably amazing at knowing your neighbors you've been there a long time great community and that is awesome but this is a transient area if you're in the military too i you know your struggle you come like okay well who's the next group of people that I shouldn't get to know because I gotta leave here in two years. You know, there's that deal. But God understands that. It's making the most of the opportunity, the situation that you're in. All right, 
Here's a raising of the hands, um, or you can point to the person here, because there are some people in here that literally have the gift, scriptural gift of hospitality. If you have that gift or you're sitting next to someone that does, could you raise your hand right now? Don't be shy. Let's see it. All right. Look at our, look at our hospitable folks. Yes, I see the hands up there in the balcony too. So I love people that have the gift of hospitality. It's so beautiful. So here's good news for you guys. Here's good news for those of you that don't have the gift of hospitality. You never have to invite your neighbors over. Just like those of you that aren't called evangelists, you never have to share the gospel. Isn't that good news? Okay, if you didn't, if you didn't catch that sarcasm, I laid it on pretty heavy. False, as uh, Dwight Schrute would say. Hospitality does come with some level of sacrifice, and, and we are all called to do it to some degree. It's sacrifice because um, it will require your time, your money, preparation, prayer, making the invitation, having a conversation, having follow-up. Uh, to, to do hospitality right involves a lot of those things. And I tell you what, the price is worth it. Why is it worth it? Well, you know, it wouldn't be a Santum sermon if I didn't have, you know, a dumb video or a uh, few visual aids. The reason hospitality is important is because the gospel is like a bowling ball, all right? It's a little bit like, a little bit like a parable. There's only one main point to this, so don't say, oh, let's count the 10 ways that Mark says the gospel is like a bowling ball. The gospel is like a bowling ball because you know how you should give a bowling ball to someone? You should hand it to them, right? Hand it to you, Sir Ripley, right? So what if I had this bowling ball, like, oh, this bowling ball is great. Hey, who wants a bowling ball? I just chuck it into the cheap seats, which I could do, of course. But you understand the gospel is weighty. It's weighty. And you would never, to a neighbor, you would never say, hey, I got something weighty and important. I'm going to throw this over the fence. I hope that you'll catch it. Because that's how some people do evangelism. Getting thrown a bowling ball at you is not evangelism, right? So what I love about this quote, there's a, a guy named Dustin Willis who says this, the aim of hospitality is to forge relationships strong enough to bear the weight of truth given in love. Amen? I'm going to read that again. The goal or the aim of hospitality is to forge relationships strong enough to bear the weight of truth given in love. It's often said that you have to build a bridge, building a relational bridge. Because if you build a relational bridge, I can cross that relational bridge and then hand the ball to Kathy, right? If I don't have the bridge, I have no choice but to chuck it. And it is that, then you get, you reinforce the stereotype of the Bible thumpers and the people like, oh, they don't really care about me. You know, they just, they're just trying to check lists off of a religious duty. And let me just say this. Some of you, and I am guilty, I have been guilty of this, some of us work really hard to build these bridges of relationship with neighbors, and we never cross them. The bridges have been built. The ball is here. We have, the, we have a good relationship with them. We have earned the right, so to speak, to, to share the beauty of this man named Jesus with them, and we don't. Lord, help us. Lord, help us as a body to, to not just build bridges, but to cross the bridges that we have built. Might you get rejected? Yep. But if you, the general rule of thumb is the stronger relationship you have with them, even if they don't receive your Jesus, right? 
they'll still stay in fellowship with you. Amen. So here's the deal. Put that ball back. I'm glad I didn't really have to throw that this today. Um, what I love, one of my favorite verses in the scripture that bears this out is Paul, Silas, and Timothy in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. I think we have that up on the screen. They said this to the Thessalonians. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted. Everyone say delighted. We were delighted to throw this bowling ball across the room to you. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very own lives as well. To share, to do life with believers and with unbelievers, the neighbors, the kind of, just to do life with people. What a delight. How awesome is that? We have currently, uh, Tina and I and Rachel and Ethan, we have neighbors um, uh, over here, Archie, Keith and Regina, we love them. We, uh, they might come to church. We invite them sometimes. But Archie is uh, an older man. He's, I think he's 94, 95 years old, sharp as a tack, great man. But so not, not many people have this expectation put upon them. The day we moved in, uh, Archie came over and introduced himself. And he goes, I heard, because he was friends with the guy that used to own our house. He said, the former owner told me that you're a preacher. I was like, well, yeah, kind of like that. And he said, well, good. Now I got someone to do my funeral. I was like, all right, well, here we go. Here we go. Better start getting to know this guy. And, uh, and so we have, we have nothing in common. I mean, you ask my wife, we have very little in common with these guys. Uh, Keith, he's, uh, he's got this, uh, this uh, antenna because he does CB uh, when we first moved in, his, his conversations, which were all night long, by the way, they would come through our speakers and our phone. We didn't know what was going on. But uh, praise be to the Lord, during a, during a hur uh, hurricane a few years ago, the, his tower came down. I mean, we marched around it seven times. Am I right, Tina? And that thing came down. So... Uh, and it was just cool because what we've done is we've got, we just go, we got to know them. We take stuff over to them all the time. We invited them over to um, our house for a cookout um, last month. A little bit awkward, but we did it. And um, just little opportunities that you have. So God will give opportunities for you uh, to step into your neighbor's lives. So case in point, we have our young, adult, our, our young adults group here. Some of you guys are in the young adults group. We're meeting at our house. And... Um, Right when we were getting ready to start, there was, an, there was an apparent accident right outside on our corner in the intersection. My first thought is, oh, Lord, please don't let that be a young adult. So from the group. So it wasn't. But so the Sticklings who weren't here today, they were actually at the intersection. They saw this all happen. So Keith, our neighbor, he has his motorized bike, right? He's like zip, not a motorbike, a motorized bicycle. And he's zipping down here. It's like, you know, uh, twilight. And a car doesn't see him, pulls out right in front of him. He hits it and does a Superman. Right over, boom, hits the, hits the ground on his head and flips over. And so there's police everywhere. So we, we you know, we kind of go out, see what we can do, you know, pray for him real quickly. So Keith, you know, his, he was all messed up. But he actually got up, you know, asked for a cigarette and uh, wanted to get on with his thing. And uh, so we found out after that he went to the hospital that night. He was in the waiting room for like three hours. And because um, they had apparently checked him out. So when they actually got his x-rays back, they came out and they said, they said, Keith, like Mr. Sears, do not move. They found out that he had broke his neck in three places. And he, he'd been just sitting around there for three hours and uh, moving his head from side to side. 
They came, and of course, the next time we saw him, Keith was in one of these deals for six months. But they called, they called him the miracle man because the doctor said, everyone, everyone else I've seen like that, they would have had some level of paralysis. So anyhow, so we, we told him we were praying for him. And so whenever he returned from the hospital, the young adults group, we bought him a bicycle helmet, which he did not have, by the way. We wrote Psalm 91. We all signed it. I gave it to him, and he had tears in his eyes and shared it and, you know, kind of shared the testimony, what God had done. I don't even know. We don't even think he really knows Jesus, but he has a sense of God and, and just be able to, God gave us a window of opportunity. And every time he, he motors around, he's got that Psalm 91 helmet on. And our, and our church was a part of that. So here's the caution. So we begin to close. We should not view our neighbors simply as spiritual targets or evangelistic projects like a used car salesman. No offense if you are a used car salesman. <laughs> but here's a, here, here, here's a great quote. We must care about people for who they are as image bearers of God and not simply for who they might become, namely our brothers and sisters in Christ. Essentially, if they ask you, will you still accept me if I don't accept your Jesus, your answer better be yes. And you keep praying for him. Amen. Well, as we endeavor to meet and build relationships, I have a little uh, tool that will help you. Uh, everyone here have a GPS in your car, which stands for Global Positioning System. Not anymore. GPS now stands for Goals, Passions, and Struggles. This is a guide. If you want to begin a conversation with your neighbors, Begin to find out what their goals are. What do they want out of life? Their passions, what interests them, excites them, their struggles. What is causing them pain in their lives? You begin to, you begin to figure those things out. They become conversation points. They become prayer points. And the Holy Spirit begin to move. Amen? And I, just real quickly, I'll tell the, the, the very truncated story of this. When, when uh, my wife and I first moved, uh, we got married. We lived in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. We had a neighbor uh, off to our right named Josie. She had kids, and uh, they were, you know, they, it, it was, they were a tough family. They had a lot of hardships. Anyhow, short story is, husband lost his job. It was going into wintertime, and, the, the, and so Josie confided in Tina because she'd built a relationship with them, she, and we had, like, really nothing in common with them. And Josie told Tina that, that the power company was going to shut off their heat, and we were going into wintertime. You know, what, what do you do? Well, the Lord moved on my wife's heart, and she, uh, our, for our working community there at Geneva College and some others, she raised hundreds and hundreds of dollars for this family so they could keep their heat on in the wintertime, okay? That's what we are talking about, the struggles. This is the, the windows of opportunity. We get to come in and share the gospel in word and in deed. So what are your godly neighbor goals? If you look at the next slide, to take them from stranger to friend to follower of Jesus. There's a lot of strangers out there, so the next step is become friends with them. And as you become friends, then you invite them. When the opportunity is right, as the Spirit leads to be a follower of Jesus. So remember, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us, 2 Corinthians 5. Let's be ambassadors in the form of not just good neighbors who look to keep the peace, but let's glorify God by being godly neighbors who look to be blessings to our communities and bearers of the good news of Jesus. Let's be 21st century good Samaritans who risk and sacrifice for the good of those around us, especially for those who live near us, because they are not 
there by accident. And as always, whatever you do, be compelled by the love of God and be led by the Spirit of God. Don't make this an, a religious obligation checklist. Like, I gotta go meet my neighbors. Holy Spirit, he's already, he's, he's already moving in the lives of your neighbors. And so through prayer and initiation, right, hospitality, you can, you, the Lord will let you into their lives and then you can bring the blessing of Jesus into their lives, amen. I close with this. Here's a grill right here. A, uh, fortunately for a church picnic, we have much bigger grills today because <laughs> the line would be very long. The uh, invitation for you, the challenge for us, the church, is open up your grill, open up your home to a neighbor that you do not know or a neighbor that you need to get to know better. Would you be willing just to be not just a good neighbor, but a godly neighbor? Because you're doing it, whatever we do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord. Amen? So my prayer as I close, that the Lord will lead us, each of us, to find neighbors that we do not know, knowing that you are there on purpose and so are they. And you would invite them over to your grill. If you don't have one, invite them over for a meal. Whatever the case is, it's kind of a metaphor, but I would hope that we as a church would be able to do that and have some testimonies at the end of the summer of how God would reveal his glory through you, through friendship, through being a good neighbor, and that you would uh, get to share the love of Jesus with them. So we all need a little bit of accountability too. So when you go out to the picnic, there is a, a table out there where you can not only put your um, database cards, but there's, there's just a, there's a clipboard out there that says, yeah, uh, my endeavor is to open up my grill, my home, this summer to a neighbor. All you do is write your name and I think your email address or something. And uh, I'm not going to check on anyone, but I, will, I, I may send out a, a reminder email like, hey, go and do it because we all need to be cheered on a little bit. Can, can we do that? Are we up for that challenge? Well, I hope that we are. To open your home, to open your grill, show some hospitality, and be the hands, the feet, and the love of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we love you. We thank you today, Lord, that we have the opportunity to come around as a family of God, uh, to eat together, to fellowship together. But Lord, let us not forget that there is a whole world out there. We are going back to our neighborhoods where there are people whose lives are in absolute crisis and people that don't realize that their spiritual souls in absolute crisis. Lord, would you, by your spirit, lead us to be good and godly neighbors, reaching out in love and help and grace and encouragement and support and prayer and opening up our homes and our grills that we'd be able to share not only the gospel of God with them but our very own lives because that is the best avenue, Lord, to, to deliver this bowling ball of the gospel. Lord, help us to build bridges and give us courage to cross them for the glory of God. Lord, we love you. We thank you for hearing us today. Let us all be good Samaritans in the way that you would lead us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.